We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always my co-host Nick Bellato. And first, let me address the elephant in the room for those watching on YouTube. Yes, you see me in the same shirt that I appeared in in last night's podcast. But in last night's podcast, I had just gotten back from golf. I showered and I threw on a shirt. In my opinion, if you shower, throw on a shirt and go to bed, you can definitely wear that shirt the next day. I think it's absurd to suggest that someone has to change a shirt just because they slept in it after doing nothing in it. Deodorant on. I podcasted in it. I did one podcast and oh, okay. Well, guess what? I can go to sleep in that shirt, wake up, wear it the next day. I am not, I can't go through shirts like that. Like I, I don't want to be doing laundry 17 times a week. Like you take a shirt, you can sleep in it. You can wear it again. This is a freaking sweet shirt too. I wanted to wear it again. It's a Jimi Hendrix live concert shirt from 1968 that I bought when I was in New Orleans. I was not there, but I bought it when I was in New Orleans because it was so cool. It's from a concert in New Orleans. Saw the shirt. Love this thing. And Jimi Hendrix is freaking awesome. I love him too. So you know what? I wore it. Yes, I went to sleep and I wore the shirt again. Okay, you know what? Kill me. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And can you say New Orleans one more time? New Orleans. You were saying it a little bit different before. I want people to Uh, listen to this right now and then rewind it and then see how Dan said it and then reflect on how he just said it and then make fun of him on Twitter for that. That's all fine. But the shirt thing, I had to address that before we got into this. All right, Nick, let's talk a little bit about some things we learned from the Giants' second padded practice against the Detroit Lions on Tuesday. We're recording right now. It was a good day for the Giants offense. It was a return to normalcy, at least the normalcy that has been established in training camp practicing against their own players. Obviously having a day to look at that Lions defense and reflect on what they did schematically probably helped the Giants because Daniel Jones specifically and the passing game were much better. Just to go over a few stats here uh, from Connor Hughes, who was at practice and took notes. Jones went 12 of 17 during 11 on 11 drills, five touchdowns, three in the red zone drills. Two of the scores came in, or sorry, two of the scores came in the red zone drills. He went eight of 11 with two touchdowns on the full 11, 11 drills outside the 25 yard line. A quote from Isaiah Hodgins. He was going crazy. Quote unquote, Jones went six of seven with two touchdowns, seven on seven drills. Again, we don't care as much about the seven on sevens, the 11 on 11 that stand out to us. Jones hit Isaiah Hodgins on a deep dig route in the 11-on-11 drills. I love the deep dig. I talked about this on yesterday's podcast. Daniel Jones throws the deep dig route better than anyone. And Hughes described it as deep in. I think it's similar, if not the same route. 
He throws it better than any route he throws, in my opinion. He's done so with all different coordinators, with Jason Garrett specifically, but also last season with Dable. It's really exciting that Jones has good velocity and ball placement and timing on these deep in cuts because Brian Dable's offense has a lot of staples in it. I talked about this a little bit on Twitter earlier today, Nick, and I want to get your take on this. I get excited with this type of thing because after watching so much Buffalo tape with Brian Dable and then also seeing some of what they did best, the Giants in the passing game in 2022, the Green Bay Packers game, a lot of those deep over routes. Some they missed. Uh, Jones missed the Slayton potential touchdown yeah. that game, but hit on a few. And the Minnesota games. This is the area of the field. And I know, I guess it was against two defensive coordinators whose systems kind of lead to those areas of the field being more open, especially last year, the issues that Green Bay and Minnesota had on defense communication-wise with those systems. But having said that, I know Brian Dable wants to use this area of the field, and I know adding a Darren Waller to the mix is going to open up this area of the field. So I'm excited about that. Let's start with that, Nick. What did you think of of kind of uh, – what, what do you think of that that take to start? I like that take, and specifically to Ed Donatel and Joe Barry. Joe Barry is a very good defensive coordinator in terms of his run fits. It's one of the reasons why he is a defensive coordinator. The secondary has been a little bit of a nightmare. I brought this up on a YouTube that I did for the channel. If anybody wants to go check it out, it was posted. It's called Film Room, Jalen Hyatt's Floor and Ceiling. The cover four defense, the quarters defense, has proliferated around the NFL due to Vic Fangio, Brandon Staley. It's difficult if defenses are not very communicative, if they have issues on the back end in terms of people cycling in and there's not a lot of rapport. Those over routes, you need to be able to pass them off if you're running a match type of defense. And a lot of defenses don't do that well. The Giants exploited Ed Donatel twice last year. It makes sense to want to run a lot of those overs, a lot of those dig routes, and to attack, especially now that you added speed with Darren Waller, Jalen Hyatt, who can stretch and remove the safety and open up a void behind the linebackers. You're going to have a lot of three-level reads. And the Giants had that last year. They just never really threw it deep. We need more throws deep. One of the plays I wanted to bring up specifically from practice, it doesn't necessarily pertain to that, but it was in the red zone drill, and it was a mesh concept. We've seen a ton of mesh concepts from Brian Dable. We saw a lot with Pat Shermer as well. Mesh concept is when you have receiver on each side of the field. They're going to both run drag routes. You're going to have one go over. It's going to be the mosh, man over. And then you're going to have one go under. That's going to be the mush, man under. You basically slap hands. But man coverage is very hard to defend because there's just a ton of traffic. And there's a lot of rub routes and pick routes. Well, in the red zone, the Giants ran that. Darren Waller was one of the players running the drag. And if you freeze the clip, I put it up on Twitter at about the three or four second mark, you'll see Darren Waller in the end zone with three defenders right around him. And he's still towering over all three of them. Kirby Joseph was the safety. He got sucked up by sucking Kirby Joseph up towards Darren Waller, occupying Kirby Joseph's eyes. There was a backside dig coming from Darius Slayton and it ended up being a touchdown, a good throw by Daniel Jones. We'll go over that in a bit. That's the Darren Waller effect that we want to see. Look, mesh concept is not novel. It's something the Giants ran a ton. But having Daniel Bellinger or even Lawrence Cager or Tanner Hudson run that is different than Darren Waller because Darren Waller is going to attract so much more attention. And you can see that just in this joint practice clip, stuff like that's going to translate to the season and it's going to open up opportunities and stats for guys like Darius Slayton, Isaiah Hodgins and Paris Campbell and whoever else is playing receiver because Darren Waller's presence strikes fear into the defense. You're right. And that's going to be the case in the red zone. That's going to be the case in between the 20s when Darren Waller is running vertical routes up the seam, creating that space for the deep digs that we discussed. 
And ultimately, that rep, and we'll go over that rep in depth in a little because I think that rep is the best rep I've seen from the Giants so far this summer by far. Just because, just when you consider everything that was in play, how good of a rep it was from Jones, the quarterback, from uh, the design to get Waller, you know, to have that, create that kind of space by the attention sucked up to Waller there, the expectation with the ball going to Waller. Darius Slayton with the route and it specifically the hands catch. And then the a couple of the, the, the blocks there, specifically center John Michael Schmitz. We'll go over that in a second. I first want to talk about Daniel Jones here because obviously we went over the stats at the beginning of this, but it's not just about the stats. It's great to see him bounce back because we've heard it was a bad practice for him yesterday, right? I mean, 7 of 15, receivers were getting open. The timing wasn't right. The ball placement wasn't great. And he was off yesterday in the first padded practice. Two would-be sacks in addition to those eight incomplete passes out of 15 in the team drills. Today he comes back and just totally does the opposite, essentially. Misses maybe one or two. I saw him miss a – I saw – I read that he missed a deep ball to Slayton, a little bit of an underthrow where the DB came back to it. But other than that, he was on fire. And it's important to note that this is what we talk – like, this is what the players talk about with Daniel Jones. This is what Brian Dable talks about with Daniel Jones. This is what Joe Shane talks about Daniel Jones. They love the resiliency. They love the bounce-back factor. They love that he's able to put that behind him, erase that rep, erase that day, erase whatever it may be. Short memory. We talk about short memory a lot with the cornerback position, and it's important there. It's probably equally as important with the quarterback position, right? I mean, if you let that get to you and you don't put that behind you, there's a good chance it's going to cascade on itself. And I think Daniel Jones has really done a good job of that. I've seen it at other times in his past. There's really very few times I feel like he's been rattled early and it's carried over. The one game that reminds, and this is like a four-season sample size, and the one game that really stood out was just that Tampa Bay Monday night game uh, from a few years back. Yeah. Even then, within that game, he kind of bounced back at the end with that two-minute drill drive. Yes, it was aided by Darius Slayton making a really good play, um, and it didn't finish great in the red zone, obviously, where he was late on that throw to Deion Lewis, I believe it was, in the flat. Was. But... That was the one time I really saw him kind of be rattled and have it kind of, you know, have that, you know, mindset. But other than that, we have a large four season sample size of him really putting it behind him, him really being that resilient quarterback. And I think it was really important for him to have a good day today in practice. And he did. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I'm not surprised by it, though, because this is a very physically and mentally tough individual. Say what you want about Daniel Jones. We have said it on this podcast. We get criticized for saying it. But this guy is mentally and physically tough. And that Tampa Bay game, it was a Monday night football game. And Todd Bowles threw the kitchen sink at Daniel Jones. And it was one of his worst professional games. But as you said, he still led a two-minute drive, aided by Darius Slayton, ended up scoring the touchdown, just missed the two-point conversion. I'm not surprised by Daniel Jones bouncing back in a joint practice against the Detroit Lions. So it's it's um something that I expect that we continue to see. And if anybody needs another microcosm of that, just go back to the Green Bay game when Jones led a 90-yard drive without Saquon Barkley to, to, I think it was either take the lead or tie the football game up, whatever it was. That was a huge moment for Daniel Jones. And he's kind of stacked little moments like that up throughout his career that give at least me the impression that he is somebody who has the mental fortitude to last in this league. And look, Nick, I know you agree with me on this, but if not, you can obviously correct me, but I just know you enough to know you agree on this. We're not really, we, our podcast and our analysis is based a lot on the film. It's based on analytics. It's based on things that we feel like are factors. There's some, there's one thing though, that is not actually like a proven factor. And I believe in it. And it's that it factor. And I really do believe that some players have the ability to rise to the occasion in big spots. Eli Manning is like the best example of that man. Like you could look at a lot of the games in his career that prove that 
the ones that people note. But the one that really stands out the most to me to kind of define this point is that green, final playoff game against Green Bay because it wasn't a good regular season really for Eli in 2016. It wasn't the same. He wasn't the same quarterback in general at that point. But I mean, in that game in 26, like the offense, basically that season was throw a slant to Odell Beckham, have him house it. It's essentially all the offense was. There was no run game. There was no real offense. The Giants won games by like a point by scoring 20 points and winning 20 to 19. But in that playoff game, the ball placement was phenomenal. The reads were phenomenal. Hanging in the pocket to the last second like Eli did in during like the 2011 run. It was there. It reminded me some at some points of that 49ers game from 2011 AMC Championship where Eli's just taking hit after hit, standing in the pocket and delivering at the last second. And he clearly in that moment rose to the occasion and brought out the best of what was left of him. And I felt like, you know, you can look at the first three seasons with Daniel Jones and understand that the situation was horrific around him. Horrible Jason Garrett years, bad coordinator. Never had an offensive line really until last season. I know a lot of people still didn't like the O-line last year. I thought it improved clearly on film. But last year when he finally had a little bit of, of, of help, help around him, even if you don't want to call the supporting guest help, you know, you know for a fact, everyone listening to the podcast, that you got to call Dable and Kafka help. Because Dable and Kafka were a big help for everyone on that team last year. So when he finally got a little bit of help last year, I thought he did show a little bit of an it factor. I swear to God, it felt like it was there. The Green Bay game was a great example of when it first showed up. The Baltimore game had some moments, I thought, as well of the it factor. And then the Minnesota Vikings playoff game. That was an it factor game from Daniel Jones. He played unbelievable in that game. He was lights out. And I think this is another good example of it, right? Like down first practice in the bad practice against the Lions, comes back, shows that I'm still there. I can still do it. I can still bring back what we've seen, seen already against our own defense in training camp, and I can light it up. And he was lighting it up today in practice. So that was really exciting to me because that, to me, is a real thing. I know it's not defined by anything, Nick. It's kind of like momentum, but I do believe in it some for some reason. No, I'm right there with you. Eight of 11 with two touchdowns from outside the 25-yard line and 12 of 17 with five total touchdowns and 11 on 11 drills is nothing to sneeze at. And I get that the, this is padded practice. They're trying different things. Or not padded practice. This is joint practice. They're trying different things. So the Detroit Lions, not necessarily one of the best defenses, but it's a step in the right direction. It also just shows the resilience that we want in a quarterback because he's probably hearing like, hey, you sucked. Yesterday, I don't know if he goes on Twitter, but that was the, the storyline on Twitter. And today, he kind of proved himself again, like, hey, I got this. I'm, we're going to be fine. So it's nothing to really, we didn't freak out yesterday. We're not freaking out today, but I still just think this checks out with everything else that we've learned about Daniel Jones over the last year and some change. You're damn right. And I want to expand a little bit on that red zone rep you brought up earlier where the Giants uh, completed a touchdown to Darius Slayton. Now, we, you, bro you touched a little bit on the design. You touched a little bit on the Darren Waller factor of it all with that triangle of Lions defenders around him. That was all awesome. I want to take a look a little bit and break this down from uh, the quarterback standpoint and then from the receiver standpoint. So let's start with Daniel Jones here on the play. So on this rep, and then also I want to talk about John Michael Schmitz's rep, but on this rep, Daniel Jones climbs the pocket in the red zone to oh, almost like laterally and then to his right a little bit and then torques his body back to the left and throws basically a dot, a high-velocity line dot to Darius Slayton who makes the hands catch. So one thing that I noticed on this rep, Nick, was – and this is something that I'm starting to see a lot more this summer than I've ever seen before from Daniel Jones was the ability to change the arm slot on the throw. One thing we've talked about in the past with Jones is, and this was especially true during the Jason Garrett era, a lot of the throws he made 
were from a clean pocket with his shoulders squared, throwing it over the top. And that's something that really helped him early in his career because, you know, David Cutcliffe, great quarterback coach. He was his coach uh, at Duke kind of, and, and you saw it with Eli Manning. You saw it with Peyton Manning, very sound mechanics from the upper half. And, you know, a lot of what they teach is that over the top throw because it's the most consistent way to throw a football. But at times, as you've seen with Aaron Rodgers, as you've seen with Patrick Mahomes, some of the great quarterbacks, you don't want to throw from over the top. You don't want to throw that way because you can't. You need to change your arm slot to make a throw. If Daniel Jones had climbed the pocket there and then tried to throw over the top to Darius Slayton, that ball would have been nowhere near the receiver. It's impossible to make that throw. But you need to change the arm slot. And he did it on that throw. And despite changing the arm slot and throwing from a really difficult arm angle, I thought, Nick, he was able to generate velocity on that throw. So I want to ask you a little bit about something that has been discussed by us at times, but not often, Nick. And that's the factor of can a quarterback improve his arm strength as he goes on? Is that something that can happen? And, you know, I start to believe that, Nick, it becomes a real factor when you watch Daniel Jones start to pile this up because it wasn't just this rep. We've seen it throughout camp. He's had more different arm slot throws than I've seen from Jones at any point in his career, really during this training camp. And it started to show up, by the way, last season. We talked about in that Colts game or the Vikings game on that two-point conversion throw to uh, Daniel Bellinger that was big. Is arm strength something you can improve? Because I'm starting to believe with training in the lower half of your body, specifically the core and the lower half, the legs, you can kind of generate more pop and more power on your throws. Um, but on that throw specifically, it's not really lower half. It's not really core. It's kind of all arm talent there. So so what are your thoughts on that and, and, and that throw specifically? 100%. You can improve your arm strength just through training and flexibility and doing a lot of different things. Like in that specific play, he contorted his body. And one of the things I appreciated the most about the play, Dan, was he kept his eyes downfield as well. And I get it, he's not going to get smacked here, but we've seen a lot of times where Daniel Jones, when he opts to run, he's just going to take off and he's going to run, but he kept his eyes downfield and waited and he was patient. He might have even looked at Darren Waller to keep Kirby Joseph there. We're not really 100% sure, but he knew Darius Slayton was going to break open. But in terms of arm strength improving, yeah, absolutely. You can improve your arm strength. It's not going to be substantial. You're not going to be Chad Pennington and then just work out yeah. a bunch and end up being Patrick Mahomes. You can do things in order to at least improve your overall velocity, how you train in the offseason, diet. All of that stuff does get factored into slightly improving your craft. And I'm sure Daniel Jones has done that. I mean, we saw, what was it? I think last offseason, Maybe it was two off seasons ago when Daniel Jones showed up to training camp and he just looked physically bigger. I don't know if we necessarily saw a jump in arm strength because I felt like Daniel Jones in his rookie season, even if you go back to the Tampa Bay game, some of his best throws yeah. were from that Tampa Bay game. Just from what we're seeing in training camp, there does seem to be a little bit more pop on the football. I would love to actually see stats on it if they could actually test the velocity yeah. of the football like they do at the combine, but it does look good coming off of his hand. They never give us those stats next gen or anything. We never get the velocity stats in season. That'd be such a cool way to look at some quarterbacks. Um, and I, I hope one day they're able to do that, but I really like the point you brought up before we move past the quarterback about his ability on that play to step up in the pocket and keep his eyes downfield and maybe even look off the coverage by uh, looking at Darren Wall. We don't know that we don't have the film or anything, but at the very least he keeps his eyes downfield. That was something that really improved. I thought in 2022, his ability specifically in the red zone to create off script by stepping into pockets and then kind of using his eyes uh, to, to create those plays downfield that maybe not may not have been there. You talked about it as a backside dig to Darius Slayton on that throw. Is that something you think can help his help him take his game to the next level? In addition to obviously other things we've talked about wanting to see, anticipatory throwing. 
Absolutely. I mean, we saw it last year. There were several touchdowns to Isaiah Hodgins. I think there was one to Richie James. There was a two-point conversion to Daniel Bellinger. I think there was down to Daniel Bellinger. This was all after the first Vikings game where Daniel Jones was in the pocket in the red zone. He stepped up, he maneuvered, and then that just puts this defense into a bind. There's not a lot of field to defend. So when you see a quarterback, a mobile quarterback like Daniel Jones step up, the defender, the linebacker, the safety, the corner, the nickel, whatever it is, he's going to come forward because he doesn't want you to he doesn't want to concede any yardage to you. And if he steps forward, that's going to allow a route to come open behind him. The Giants do a really good job scheming that. I think it's deliberate by Mike Kafka and Brian Dable to put that defense into conflict and be like, hey, Daniel Jones, if you don't like your first read, step up into the pocket, find a crease, like we always say, the B gap, but then stay behind the line of scrimmage and right. keep your eyes downfield. That is something that Daniel Jones did masterfully last year, specifically at the end of the season when the Giants started hitting their stride and their passing attack and their West Coast game started really hitting it, which is funny because West Coast passing game is just one, two, three, find the first read, get to the second read, throw. It's really progressive. This one, it was West Coast, had West Coast elements, had spread elements. What we're referring to right now isn't necessarily a timing and rhythmic passing attack. It's extemporizing. It's Daniel Jones using his ability to extend the play. That wasn't something that was really evident throughout his film through his first three years in the NFL. And I really appreciated what we saw from that standpoint last year from him. Yeah. If I thought if I were to break down the biggest areas where Daniel Jones took a jump last season, the first and foremost by far in a way would be his pocket presence, his pocket feel and his pocket manipulation. And that's an example of pocket presence, pocket feel and manipulation. But part of what makes that work so well, isn't just his ability to manipulate the pocket. It's the page he's on now with these receivers on those types of extemporized plays where it's off script, he's manipulated the pocket to the point that you've discussed where he stepped up through it while also keeping his eyes downfield and keeping the play as a two-way play, right? It's not just head down, run. Now it's a play where the running back, uh, the quarterback has turned into a runner. It's head up, look downfield, have an idea of what your receivers want to do on these type of broken plays, which we saw such a better job of. And we even heard, a uh, not a podcast, but it was an interview with Darius Slayton or Hodgins last season where they talked about how they all have a plan now with DJ on these types of plays where Richie James at last year, Richie James knew what he was going to do on these types of plays. Darius yeah. Slayton knew he was going to do and Isaiah Hodgins as well. And so now it's turned into a two-way go at this point. You can either run it, turn into a runner as a quarterback, or you're on this page with these receivers and you can maybe make a play like we just saw on that rep with Darius Slayton. And for those who want to see the rep, by the way, both Nick and I tweeted it out. The Giants account tweeted it out. You can find it anywhere really on Twitter. Um, but And turn that into a touchdown because maybe if he runs it, he gets a gain there, but it might not be a touchdown defense collapse. And he takes a big hit that we don't want to see the quarterback taking because the thing, last thing we can afford is an injury to Daniel Jones. But instead, you throw the football, you make the and the receiver, if the receiver makes the catch, now you have a touchdown. Now your quarterback is not, uh, you know, risking his body and putting himself on the line. So definitely an area improvement I love to see. Let's talk about the catch too, Nick, because one more thing on Daniel Jones too. We speak a lot about spatial awareness and how important it is just an overall football, not just as it pertains to being in the pocket as a quarterback. One of Daniel Jones, this is going back to 2019. Daniel Jones was murdered in 2019. He fumbled the football a ton. He started becoming basically a pariah and a laughing stock around the league. Now look at what he's doing with his legs and how he's manipulating the pocket and how far he's come just from that standpoint right. of stepping up and extemporizing. Because if you go back to if watch 2019 tape, how many times Daniel Jones hit his back foot, went through his progressions, had no idea what was going on around him, and then got clobbered. This year, last year, if you go to the end of the season, there were times where, yes, there was a little bit of pressure on him coming from the right side. And he just effortlessly stepped up, eyes downfield, kept eyes downfield, knew where his receivers were going to be, and kudos to the receivers for being there, and actually scored a lot of touchdowns in the red zone, which was something that seemed impossible 
under Jason Garrett. So I just wanted to make that point as well. Yeah, it's a great point. Is his awareness and feel for the pocket has just changed so much from where for where he was at, and that's like proven to me. You know, over time as we have these discussions, like what can improve as a quarterback? Can you improve arm strength? Can you improve your post snap awareness and spate of the field? And can you improve your pocket field? That's one area that I know you can improve because Daniel Jones has been a really good example of that. And somebody who's kind of the bar sets the bar for me of what I'm looking for there. When I see a quarterback come to the NFL and there's other quarterbacks who haven't done as good a job improving in it, maybe not have had as many reps. Like Zach Wilson for the jets is such a good example of this. I feel like his pocket feel and awareness are the biggest issue with his game and I was watching hard knocks last night and that was something Aaron Rodgers was like specifically working on with him and they were discussing how he's got to turn these sacks into better pocket you know getting the ball out faster or manipulating your feet or manipulating with your feet where the pocket should be so you're not taking these sacks and that's a feel thing that's an awareness thing with reps Daniel Jones has made a major improvement in that but it makes such a difference as you discussed Nick um Let's dive into the catch, too, from Slayton here. One thing we saw this offseason with Darius Slayton was he worked with his personal trainer a lot on his cat, his catch technique. So changing how he catches the football, changing how he attacks the football with his hands, trying to do everything in his power to become a better pass ca- uh, hands catcher. On this rep that we're discussing in the red zone that Slayton caught the touchdown on, that was a awesome pluck out of the air by him. Mm-hmm. A full hands catch, something we haven't seen that often from him in his career, on a fast ball that's coming with a lot of velocity there from Daniel Jones. What does that say for you? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, he's a wide receiver. If you can't catch the football in that type of scenario, you shouldn't be playing the game. So I'm not going to praise him for that. But yes, I do like the fact that he's going up with the diamond. Thumb to thumb, index finger to index finger. When it's above your head, he jumps. He did that. If it's a low pass, you're going to go pinky to pinky, and you're going to try to corral it that way and secure it. It's just stuff that they teach people playing clinic football. So um, I'm glad that I saw it, but it should not be a shock. Yeah, it shouldn't. But at the same time, it's funny because it's like we haven't always seen that from him. And a lot of receivers in the NFL have been hands catchers. Like, uh, haven't been hands catchers. They let it come into their body. So I feel like maybe it is taught early in football clinics, but I'm not so sure it's like always, it's one of those things like 
I go take a golf lesson, for example, Nick, right? And I'm taught a bunch of things. That doesn't necessarily mean all those things are going to show up in my swing the next time I go out on the golf course. I'd love <laughs> that to be the case. If I could translate all of those things, I'd already probably be a scratch golfer. But a lot of the time, you maybe can pick up on one thing or you start to develop a habit or, or you know, trying to do one thing make, makes it harder to do the other thing. And that may be the case with Slayton. I'm not sure. But all I know is I like to see that. I like to see him start to pluck balls out of the air with his hands. And this wasn't only the good, the only good rep from Slayton, by the way. He had a really big day, and he's had a really big camp. Slayton's been the most consistent wide receiver with Daniel Jones so far. And so if he can really fix the one area of his game or at least improve on the one area of his game that's held him back the most, and that's obviously the drops, that's when we start to think of him a different player. And he's only 26 years old, Nick. People don't really realize, I don't think, about Slade. He's still a developing prospect at 26. He's really just entering the prime years of 26 through 29 for the wide receiver position. And it's his second year with an actual coaching staff that knows how to leverage his skill yes. set. You want to know something? I just looked up his mock draftable as you were talking. Guess how big his hands are? Good question. I don't know. Percentile. He's got 10-inch hands. That's 86 wow. percentile. Now, I think that's the same in terms of the metric that was used at the combine as Odell Beckham Jr. But when you look at the two, I just think Odell Beckham Jr.'s fingers are so damn long that it just looks like abnormal. Yes. And, and the way they measure it at the at the combine is also from your thumb to your pinky. And maybe Odell's like like his hands just kind of go upward. And I don't think that right. counts into it as much. But 10 inch hands is that's nothing to scoff at for a wide receiver. You have guys like Hunter Renfro who have like seven and a half inch, like it's a crazy small, like my hands dwarf their hands. And yet Hunter Renfro catches still catches everything. <laughs> still catches everything. It's hard to it's hard to quantify that. Like how Hunter that is. Renfro is like the funniest player in the NFL. He looks like somebody who should never have been good at football, and yet he's fucking good at football. Like that dude gets he's open so and he catches too. everything. Like when he's healthy, he's, he's injured so last year. He's like gonna be another guy who's like a fantasy pickup this year that no one's expecting because they signed Jacoby Myers, but you'll see. Renfro will be a PPR guy. He's gonna start catching the football early and often there. They got rid of Darren Waller. They have a rookie tight end, right? Who knows yeah. how long it's going to take for Michael Mayer to get in there. And you have right. a quarterback who can't throw the football 20 yards downfield. Who's yeah. that going to benefit? It's going to benefit Hunter Renfro. <laughs> I want to talk about the, the uh, one quick thing on the Odell thing, because I heard this from an early interview with Odell when he was on the Giants. One thing he credits to why he's so good at as a hands catcher, because Odell Beckham, I think, is one of the best hands catchers I've ever seen, really. And that's what you want to be. You want to be a hands catcher. He talks about his work with grip strength, Nick. He thinks a big factor is just like forearm, forearm uh, workouts and grip strength is a big reason why. And I think you saw that also with players like Anquan Bolden and DeAndre Hopkins. So that's something maybe Darius Slayton's also working on. I'm not sure, but I love to see. I know it seems so simple, but I just like to see when Darius Slayton's going to rise up and hands catch the football the way it's supposed to be caught because that's big. And like I said, if you look at all these practice sports, not just the padded ones today, and the padded ones with the Giants throughout, he's been the go-to guy for Jones so far. He's been the most consistent receiver with the first-team offense. Not Hodgins, not uh, Campbell, not Slayton. No, I'm sorry, not Hyatt, whoever else you want to throw in the mix there. It's been Darius Slayton. That doesn't surprise me. He was their best receiver last year by far, not only in the production standpoint. On plays on film, he got open. The ball didn't come his way sometimes. Love to see what Slayton's going to do this year if he's helped or at least improved the one biggest weakness from his game. I'm very happy for him because last year at this time, we weren't even certain he was going to make the team. He was running with third team meritocracy and he proved himself. And the Giants also had a rash of injuries and he probably should have been playing originally anyways over players like David Sills. But, you know, when he ended up finding the football field eventually and made, made a made a name for himself. I'll say one thing, though, too, man, just before we move past this play, I know we're spending a lot of time on this play, but it, it was a good red zone play. We don't yeah. have too much tape to go over the blocking. And I know you brought this up on Twitter. Yes. The blocking was exceptional 
on this play. And I don't, I don't feel like we should applaud the offensive line going up against the Lions. You should be able to block and allow your quarterback to maneuver a little bit, especially since Aiden Hutchinson, I think he tried to make an initial move and then he went outside trying to win with speed around Andrew Thomas and Andrew Thomas was like, nah, son, that's not going to work. But the players that really stood out to me, a player was John Michael Schmitz and whatever guard was next to him also did a really good job. I think it was Ben Bredesen, but I'm not sure. But John Michael Schmitz stonewalled. And if that was a lean McNeil, that's excellent because only McNeil had 10 freaking pressures against the Giants. I had one of the best interior defensive line games of anybody last year, according to Pro Football Focus, which is insane. So John Michael Schmitz, man, if, if, if that's been consistent throughout that practice, throughout both of these practice, him doing or him executing like that, that's just that's a cause for me to get excited because we haven't seen that yet because he's a rookie. Yeah, and it's kind of been a really, really low-key good two practices for John Michael Schmitz, at least from what we've seen. He had a really good rep in the run game yesterday, and supposedly he's been good in the run game the entire time working with the first-team offense. But it really comes down to what you just said there. Can he be as good as he – because he was awesome on that rep that you just discussed. I mean, that was a great – that was textbook stuff. Stonewalled him and then almost moved him backwards. Like, you know, provided the perfect – and guess what? That play doesn't happen without that from John Michael Schmitz, right? Like, Daniel Jones is forced to escape – the pressure from the from the exterior by stepping up into the pocket and then making the throw to Darius Lane. You have no step pocket to step up into if if John Michael Smith doesn't make that block and execute that rep that way. And the pocket and the interior pocket integrity, a lot of quarterbacks will tell you. Eli Manning's always talked about this. Tom Brady's talked about this. They can, if they if you ask them, what would you rather have? Great tackle play or great interior play in the passing game? They all tell you the same thing. Interior play. The, the interior pocket, the integrity of interior pocket is more important to these quarterbacks that are operating from the pocket more often than not. And guess what? Every quarterback, even the runner types, are operating from the pocket more often than not. It's more important because they, in their minds, they can step up into the pocket and avoid the exterior pressure and have that edge run up the arc and just kind of take himself out of the play. But if you have the exterior and the interior pressure, like the Dexter Lawrence types of the world and the um, the Jeffrey Simmonses and the Aaron Donalds of the world, there's really nothing you can do. You can try to escape to your right. Now you're moving laterally. The play is breaking down. You have to throw off platform or you can move to your left and that becomes even harder to do. You're moving laterally again. You're throwing. You have to flip your shoulders to make the throw. But if you just have the pocket, the interior pocket, uh, you know, intact, you can do what you did on that play and you can make a big play like Daniel Jones did that wouldn't have been open uh, otherwise. So it is really exciting. If John Michael Schmitz can hit the ground running for the Giants. That's going to be a massive. We, we talked a lot, Nick, about how important Evan Neal is. John Michael Schmitz made, hitting the ground running may be just as important, if not a little bit less important. If JMS can be. 85% of what Creed Humphrey was in his rookie season. Oh, that is a grand slam for the Giants after pick 50 in the second round. And I get it. Centers, they fall a little bit. There's only 32 starting center spots in the NFL. But if John Michael Schmitz can be that guy for a decade, that's something that we haven't seen here since Sean O'Hara at the center position. It's been that long since we've had a consistent center that we can rely on. We want a Western Richburg to be that, but injuries affected him. Yeah, that's something that gets me hyped because you're right. If if Daniel Jones isn't running for his life because interior pressure is getting in on him, and look, Giants play the Eagles. They play Washington. play Dallas twice a year. Those are some good interior defensive linemen. You need the sanctity of that pocket to uphold. And, and Daniel Jones, man, he's going to be probably ecstatic if John Michael Schmitz is 85% of what Creed Humphrey was. And it's crazy that you, I mean, what you just brought up, Nick, is crazy to me because even Weston Richburg was better in the run game than the pass game and better for like a zone base, get better movement type center. It's been that long. It's been 
15 years since Giants fans have seen a really strong pass-protecting center to really anchor down and set up everything in the passing game by keeping that interior pocket uh, intact and, in, and keeping the integrity of that interior pocket. That could be just a game changer for us as watching this team to have that. That's a long time. That's 15 years of football. We really haven't had great center play. It's been okay stretches from Nick Gates and players like that, but nothing really great. And so I'm excited about the upside and potential of that. Let's go over a few more things we saw from practice. Defense had a really good opportunistic day. Some forced fumbles, including a really awesome forced fumble by Dane Belton, where the running back kind of got right out into, into, the, into the flat and Belton just snatched the football away from him. I've been excited about Dane Belton all offseason. I feel like he has some tools that could be really exciting in this specific defensive system for Wink Martindale. According to Justin Pennick, Kayvon Thibodeau had a really nice play in the run game where he set the edge and the Giants defense ended up forcing a fumble on that play, one that Kayvon Thibodeau recovered himself. Um, let's see what else we had here from the practice. Anything I else? Touch on, yeah, yeah, I want to touch on one thing with the forced fumbles. Last season, the New York Giants had six interceptions. It was embarrassing. They tied for last with the Raiders. They were second in the league behind the Cowboys with 20 forced fumbles. And if you remember, so many of those fumbles were opportunistic to the max because they came in the red zone and you're talking about the giants losing football games. If the, if Julian love or whoever it was, doesn't strip Travis ETN at the goal line, like that Jacksonville game, the giants might've lost if it wasn't for that play. I think it happened in the Ravens game as well. I might Ravens be mistaken. Thibodeau. Yep. And then there was also special teams. Mistakes, but yes. Special, yep. Washington, the special team mistake in Carolina, where there was a fumble uh, on the punt, like stuff like that. That's oh, a little yeah. bit more fluky than it is Giants forcing fumbles. But and we the Giants call that a wash because the Seahawks game where the Giants did that. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that, that was terrible. The Giants were covered only 13 of those fumbles, 13 of those 20. It's still more than half. They had the one fumble recovery for a touchdown with Kayvon Thibodeau. But man, the Giants get up their interceptions and still be opportunistic with those fumbles. It's difficult, man. That's fluky. That's a stat that doesn't yeah. necessarily carry over. But you know Wink Martindale has these guys buzzing to the football and chopping at it. Xavier McKinney is one of the players who does yes. that best. And I, I, we saw Dane Belton. That's because according to, um, I think it was Bobby Skinner who put this on Twitter, there was three forced fumbles in practice. And it kind of just made me think, like, man, if they can continue doing that. And the Dane Belton play was awesome. I think that was David Montgomery. I think he's number five on Detroit. Catches the pass, turns up field. Dane Belton debos it. It was one of the slickest. That was cool. That's my football I've ever seen. One of my one of the slickest. It wasn't even, I don't even know if it was a forced fumble. I don't think it hit the ground. No, it didn't. I don't think it was, I don't even know if it should be considered like a forced fumble because there was never there was never a point where the ball was up for grabs. It was in David Montgomery's arms, and then it was in Dane Belton's arms. Yeah. That's how smooth it was from Dane Belton. Right. It was like perfect timing by him on that chop to get that ball to snatch it. Um, almost might have been like a borderline interception. <laughs> it's not. I think it would still go down as a forced fumble recovery. But yeah, that's a great point. The opportunistic style of this defense with Wink Martindale's coordinator is a big reason the Giants were able to have success last season. Because if you dig deeper into the stats, the Giants were not strong as a defense in DVOA. They were one of the worst in the, I think they're bottom 10 in the NFL. Same thing with like all of the yardage metrics. Where the Giants won last year is because the defense was really good in the red zone, really good on third downs, and really opportunistic, like you talked about with forced fumbles. Those three factors, those are the money downs, those are the money plays, if you if you factor in also the turnover side of that. And that's the difference there. That's the reason, because 
If you're good on third downs, you get off the field. If you're good in the red zone, you force uh, you turn drives from seven points into three points. And if you're good with forced fumbles, you flip the entire game by winning the turnover battle. You mentioned those three games where it made the biggest difference. It really is the difference between six wins and nines win, nine wins last season in a lot of ways. So definitely exciting. Let's wrap up by just talking about a few position battle updates that we saw. Um, John Michael Smith, like I mentioned earlier, locked in now, center one. Yeah. I don't think that's changing. Bredesen was the starting left guard. Wazudu apparently mixed in, but that's starting to feel a little bit more like Bredesen has the upper hand there. We'll see what happens. Glowinski starting right guard. Bredesen mixed in. Micah McFadden two days in a row as the inside linebacker. I don't know what this says for Darren Beavers, but it definitely says something good for McFadden. Same thing at slot. Darnay Holmes over Cordell Flott for a second practice in a row. So while the Giants did kind of mix and match a lot of the players we just mentioned, in their own training camp practices, day one, a day for McFadden here, a day for Beavers there, a day for Holmes here, a day for Flott there. When it comes to these back-to-back padded practices against another team, I think we're starting to really recognize that there is some depth chart movement based on what they've done with guys getting back-to-back uh, starts in practice. The most important part of that is the Darnay Holmes one, just because of the money, as we said. Yeah. And Cordell Flott's not winning that job. That's a day two pick. This is his second season. We know he was a young player. We're not casting him aside. but you want him to win that job. I'm oh, sure the yeah. Giants want him to win that job. They like Darnay Holmes. They do. You have this guy on your roster who is much cheaper than Darnay Holmes and you are cap strapped. So that's not a, a great sign in the development of Cordell Flop, but maybe he's dealing with something and we're, and we're not privy to that. We also saw, uh, according to Pat Leonard, a nice combo block with Matt Paird, who's playing right tackle now, um, and Ben Bredesen. I, the thing with Paird is this, like, I've always felt like he offers something in the run game, honestly. Like, I feel like it, <laughs> I hate to say it, Nick. This is probably going to go over poorly uh, in the comment section, but I almost feel like I've seen more from him in the run game than I saw from Evan Neal as a rookie, if I'm going to be completely honest about it. Because Matt Parrott, I think, moves better than than Evan Neal does. And I just feel like the pop on contact might be as good, if not better. Um, but that was last season. Evan Neal's worked a lot on his flexibility, on everything that's going to lead to him being a better player, hopefully, in 2023. And he was great on film at Alabama. But Matt Parrott doesn't, it doesn't surprise me when I see these reps that are good in the run game. But I just, if you're my tackle, I know I care about what you do in the run game for sure. It's, it helps. But if you don't do good things in the passing game, none of that matters because it's a passing league. We've talked about this a bunch. You need to pass to win. So I still want to see that kind of carry over to him in the passing game. And all I saw so far was yesterday's practice where he had a lot of trouble with Aiden Hutchinson. So it's a good thing. I like that the Giants are giving him those reps. I am a little surprised that it's not it's him and not Tyree Phillips as the first team right tackle with Neil out. Are you a little surprised by that? I am. I thought it would yeah. be Tyree Phillips. I was wondering if Tyree Phillips was dealing with something. And we know about a week ago, they moved Tyree Phillips to guard to give him some snaps there. Maybe something happened in practice. We're not there. Hmm. From everything I've seen from Matt Parent and Tyree Phillips, it seemed like to me that Tyree Phillips was the more competent offensive tackle option, but maybe Matt Parrott showing something just everything that I've seen from his career, man, he lets people into his outside shoulder so quickly. And he's so, I don't like using the word passive, but his punch does not dictate anything. And there are offensive linemen who are a little bit more quote unquote passive with their punch, but they latch on and you're eliminated with Matt Parrott. It's not that at all. He allows the defender to get to a secondary pass rushing move. If he even stops the pass rushing move, I feel like for somebody who's so good with his feet in terms of movement doesn't move to mirror all that well. 
He doesn't really stay in front. He always allows that defender to get to that half-man relationship. At least I'm going off of 2020 and a little bit of 2021 tape before his injury. Maybe he's progressed since then after the uh, after what he uh, tears ACL. But yeah, having Matt paired as your swing tackle, if something were to happen to Evan Neal or, or Andrew Thomas again, is something that doesn't give me a warm and fuzzy feeling. As for Evan Neal, though, with the run blocking, he had some reps last year, man. He had some reps where I'm just like, that's the run blocker that we thought we were getting out of yes. Alabama. There's one against Carolina that I remember where it was, I think it was, he, he had an inside shade and he, he stepped to the inside and, and, and the run ended up hitting, I think the a gap, but he still had to seal off the B gap. And he just absolutely eliminated the, uh, the four eye shade on this, uh, on that block and just drove him into the ground. And this was week two. So we're like, yeah, there we are. And we didn't maybe see that as frequently. But there's just flashes, and I know there's a great run blocker in there. Yes. If he can consistently stay low and keep yeah, that ass, that's down. what it is. He has to win the leverage battle more often than not, and that was an issue for him. The top heaviness, and we knew that, right? Like we even saw that on the tape at Alabama. I always, I, I, I said it from the start. I know, like you look at guys like Evan Neal, Nick, and I think the assumption from fans is like, oh, this dude is six foot seven, three forty of pretty much lean muscle. That guy's going to be a road grader. He's going to be a run blocker. But the film never said that at Alabama. It always felt to me like he was going to be a better pass blocker than run blocker in the NFL. That's at least how I saw it. Yeah, but I, I did see good tape of him. Run For sure. And I, yeah. and, and I maintain this, too, with the run blocking. Him and, and uh, Mark Lewinsky are two completely different types of run blockers. You have one who is yeah. an uber athlete, and no one really thinks of Lewinsky that way. But when he gets in space, he's a very good athlete, and he can fly. But at the point of attack, he's not as demanding or as strong. But when you see a good, well-executed combo block between the two, Evan Neal is driving the guy well out of where he is supposed to be. The defender is supposed to anchor down right in that spot to keep the continuity of the defense intact. And Evan Neal doesn't allow him to do that when those combo blocks work. There are actually really impressive ones from last season. It's just they didn't always work. And that's the consistency thing. And that's probably the main issue that a lot of Giants fans had with Evan Neal is just where is your consistency? But we relate that more to pass protection, not as much to run blocking. I think he's a solid run blocker, but I think there's there's so much more there. And once he actually reaches that level, which hopefully he will this season, then you're going to start to see the Evan Neal. That's a top 10 pick that we all expected. Yeah, without a doubt. A few more things uh, from people who are at practice. I'm just going to recap them. Pat Leonard uh, said Deontay Banks had a really nice pass breakup against Amon Ross St. Brown. We like to see that. We oh, had yeah. Justin Pennick, who was on defensive watch today from Talking Giants. Shout out, Justin, who said Bobby Okereke got his hands on two nice pass deflections. We talked a lot about Okereke his speed, his awareness, and his length, and how that could help the Giants get in pass lanes this year on pass defense. I mean, the linebackers did a really, really poor job of, in my opinion, on tape last year. Just minimal impact from the linebackers in the passing game last year. I thought that was one of the biggest weaknesses for the Giants' pass defense. Yeah, Dan, that's why the Giants signed this guy to a $10 million contract per year. People are like, oh, they overpaid him. It's like, you don't know how bad the Giants' linebackers were last year. And we're only talking about pass coverage. We're not even talking about how inept they were against power gap concepts and just overall in the run game. Jalen Smith had a couple plays throughout the season where you're like, oh, wow, he carried the wheel route up the field. Good job, Jalen Smith. But the bar was so low that <laughs> any good coverage we got excited about. So Bobby Okereke, and I get it, people are going to be like, what about the Jameer Gibbs clip that's going around? I am not blaming Bobby Okereke one bit. No. Nor do I blame the linebacker who lost to Saquon Barkley in a one-on-one. -on -one. Look, if you're going to run a one-on-one -on -one drill with a running back coming out of the backfield against a linebacker and give him any kind of double move or stutter step to where if that was a real game scenario, 
the quarterback would have been sacked two seconds ago. I'm not going to hold it against the linebacker. And I think Bobby Okereke was even like, dude, <laughs> this is just ridiculous. And I'll say one thing about Jameer Gibbs, elite top end might be the yeah. best accelerator of any running back in the NFL, especially with a running back of that type of talent. There could be maybe a special teamer who I'm overlooking, but man, he's he could be a difference maker, especially with Ben Johnson as his offensive coordinator. And I love that point you made because, <laughs> look, I'm even going to take it a step further, Nick. I, I, the first part, I thought, well, first let me touch on the first part. I, I think it's funny that we did give praise to like that one time when Jalen Smith carried that wheel route. Well, it's like, oh, yeah, I think it was against Jacksonville, if I remember, against ETN potentially, or it was the game around that range. And it's just like, this is not good, though. It's like, we can't, we can't be, this can't be the bar that we're setting. And obviously the Giants saw that and tried to correct it. But I will say this as far as the Jameer Gibbs thing goes. Even in, in game, Nick, when it's not just those one on one reps, for, which is impossible for the linebackers. No offense, it's a reality situation. Okereke is not going to be able to carry a player like Jameer Gibbs. Basically, no one in the NFL but Fred Warner is going to be able to do that from the inside linebacker position. That's the reality of the NFL. That's why we call these guys unicorns. That's why I believe if you can find one somehow in the draft, you get that guy, and it's worth a first-round pick. Now, it's harder to find those guys, right? You've tried at times. Players like Isaiah Simmons have looked close to that and hasn't panned out. So maybe the investment isn't worth it for that reason because the hit rate is low. And even if the upside of hitting is so big, but don't get mad if Bobby Okereke loses routes in season to Jameer Gibbs, because quite frankly, he's not just here to carry verticals against running backs like Jameer Gibbs, who are 199 pounds. He's here to make sideline to sideline plays in the run game, make reads in the run game, get into passing lanes in the pass game and overall be that, in uh, you know, leader in in a quarterback of the defense so i just want to make that clear because we're going to see him lose reps to running backs in the passing game when they cat when he has to carry vertically every single inside linebacker besides fred warner loses those exactly and the giants can also respond if say okarake loses one of those badly they could respond if they're not getting the ball run down their throat they can actually stop the run with lighter personnel and then put maybe a dane belton or a player like that jason pinnock on a jameer gibbs Exactly. And so we'll see that in some of those matchups when they place a team like the Lions, for example, or something like that. All right. That's all we have for today on the Big Blue Banter podcast. If you want to help us grow, please hit the like button now if you haven't already. We really need likes on these videos and hit subscribe and tell your friends, help get them to subscribe. We're getting more subscribers every day, which is cool, but I'd love that rate to grow even higher. And if you haven't already, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That'll help us grow as well. We are 80, I looked today, we are 92 iTunes reviews away from 1,000, which would be a pretty cool mark to hit there. Um, and yeah, that's all I got for you today. Talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. 
Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.